America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Central America and the country of Panama, an economic and political partner of the United States. Our guest, Isabel de San Malo de Alvarado, served both as Panama's Vice President and Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2014 to 2019. Vice President San Malo was the first woman to be elected Vice President of Panama. Prior to the Vice Presidency, Vice President San Malo served as alternate permanent representative of Panama to the United Nations and worked with the United Nations Development Program, where her team facilitated a national dialogue to approve the legislative framework for the Panama Canal Authority. In 2015, the Harry S. Truman Institute for the Promotion of Peace honored Vice President San Malo for her career achievements and her government's facilitation of the 2015 meeting between President Barack Obama and President Raul Castro in Panama City. The Isthmus of Panama divides the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and bridges the Americas. Native peoples have lived in and migrated through Panama since prehistoric times. Spanish explorers occupied that strategic strip of land in the 16th century, and used it to launch conquests across Central and South America. After three centuries of Spanish rule, Panama gained independence through a bloodless revolt on November 28, 1821, and joined Simón Bolívar's Gran Colombia. After Gran Colombia broke apart into the states of Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela in 1831, Panama remained part of Colombia until November 3, 1903, when it gained full independence as the Republic of Panama. The United States officially recognized the new nation three days later. Early Panama-U.S. relations centered on the formation of the Panama Canal Zone and the development of the canal. Two weeks after Panamanian independence, Philippe Banu Varira, on behalf of Panama, and Secretary of State John Hay negotiated a treaty granting the United States exclusive rights to construct, operate, and maintain a canal in exchange for protection of the new republic and financial compensation. Both governments ratified the hay banu Varela Treaty in 1904, even though the Panamanian government never formally granted banu Varela consent to negotiate. The canal was completed in 1914, but Panamanians doubted the validity of the treaty. Multiple Panamanian and U.S. administrations attempted agreements to address Panamanian concerns over the canal zone, but the U.S. Congress consistently opposed the agreements. Unrest over the canal zone in Panama erupted into riots in 1959 and 1964. Continued unrest prompted President Jimmy Carter to prioritize renegotiation of the treaty upon his inauguration in January of 1977. Fifteen months later, the United States and Panama ratified the Carter-Torrijos Treaties, 
which established the canal as sovereign Panamanian territory and extended the right of the United States to continue operating the canal until Panama gained control of the canal on December 31, 1999. 20th century U.S.-Panama relations were often troubled due to coups or disputes over the canal. In 1983, Panamanian General Manuel Noriega consolidated political and military power to become the de facto ruler of Panama. Noriega became estranged from the United States due mainly to his ties to drug cartels and narcotics trafficking. Following Noriega's refusal to cede power after the 1989 Panamanian election, President George H.W. Bush launched Operation Just Cause in December 1989 to restore democratic rule to Panama. U.S. forces captured Noriega and brought him to stand trial on narcotics charges in the United States. Today, the U.S. and Panama are essential economic and security partners. Panama attracts the largest amount of foreign direct investment in Central America, and the United States remains the top user of the canal. In 2016, Panama's expansion of the canal to double capacity boosted Panamanian and U.S. trade and benefited the economies of both nations. In 2019, the two countries signed a letter of intent to increase security cooperation, combat transnational crime, expand trade, and collaborate on a regional approach to migration management. We welcome Vice President San Malo as Panama and the United States pursue increased cooperation on economic development, migration, trade, and law enforcement. Vice President St. Malo, Isabel, welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying what a, what a pleasure it was to work with you years ago. I always appreciated your candor and your great sense of humor. It's, it's great to see you. General, thank you so much for inviting me to Battleground, and it's a pleasure um, looking over together with you the region and, and the world. It's an amazing invitation, so thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, uh, this is going to be great for, for our viewers and our listeners. You know, you've been working on so many important projects uh, these days, and, and one of them was is a project with the, the United Nations uh, Development Project. Uh, on governance in Latin America and the Caribbean in the face of COVID-19. You've been working on really how the region, the world, you know, can emerge from this crisis stronger. And, and so I'll just begin, you know, can you tell us about that work and, and what has been uh, the Latin American and Caribbean region's greatest challenge, do you think, in managing the pandemic? And then, and then what do we have to do to work together uh, to, to emerge from this the, this pandemic stronger and to, and to really regain, you know, the, the, the ground that we've lost and, and overcome the suffering that so many people have experienced. If we had two years ago looked forward to see what was happening in 2020 and 2021, I think nobody would have guessed the world was going to be in the midst of this pandemic, which has clearly been a health crisis. It has also been an economic crisis and it has the world upside down. Fortunately, I think vaccination uh, sheds hope and some light and we're looking forward. But um, yes, with UNDP, the development organization of the United Nations with development at its, its core, the pandemic came to be studied as not only the halt in growth and development, but the potential regression 
which is very worrying. And looking particularly to the Latin American region, we have seen that the pandemic has exposed pre-existing conditions that were there, that we knew were there, but that are just very crude on our faces with the pandemic. As I've said, not only an economic crisis and a health crisis, but for Latin America, also an educational crisis. We still don't know for certain how many children will probably never go back to the school system. The lack of internet connectivity in the underdeveloped uh, countries results in many children not having the same access to virtual learning that you find in the, in the developed world. And that's a reality, a crude reality in Latin America. So for us, after a six-month evaluation with the participation of uh, leaders from around the region, we've concluded that the pandemic for Latin America, it's a governance crisis, but it, because it's an issue of our, our institutions and our inability to respond to a crisis the way other regions have responded. And now we need to learn from that in order for our ability to build back better. So a governance crisis, if you see the numbers, Latin America has at the end of 2020, about 9% of the population of the world. However, we had 20% of COVID cases, double our size, and we had 30% of the deaths. So those numbers right there show how this region has been hit harder by a pandemic. And Latin America is not the poorest region in the world but maybe it's, it's the most unequal. And that is a reality there of our institutions not being able to respond for everybody in the same way. Once again, several uh, millions of students are able to continue their schoolings where millions of students are not. So looking forward, our approach is the necessity to build back better and this I know we've been mentioning this around the world um, in several fronts, but in terms of Latin America, it's a call to action for us to know that we need a new social contract. We need our elites to understand that unless we prioritize institution building um, and, and, and the fight against corruption and uh, the fight against inequality and poverty, we're going to have we're going to have problems. You know, this is this is a middle-income region, but we don't really have middle-income societies. We have within this middle-income region exclusion and pockets. So I think the pandemic gives us an opportunity to pause, look at what we have, and understand that we need to get our act together, and understand that those challenges of development are really at the core of all of our problems, yeah. of our security problems, of our migration problems, and of course, our, our lack of services uh, problem. You know, Isabel, I've seen in, in the elections, right, there are four big elections happening right now in South America, uh, and and, there, and those elections have been about these issues, right, about the, the uh, about economic growth, development, but also a quality of opportunity, uh, you know, big disparities, right? In, in, in income, big in, in income gaps and so forth. 
Uh, and then even in the midst of the pandemic, I remember the demonstrations that we saw in in uh, Colombia and uh, and also in Chile, you know, and and so I, I just wondered, you know, the people. It seems like the people are demanding a change; that they're frustrated. Where, where's that frustration coming from? Is it coming from from COVID and COVID exposing you know some of these issues? It's kind of almost as a as a pandemic auditor of, of societies and uh, and and uh, and what do you see the trajectory? especially between different philosophies about how to cope with it. So, for example, in Peru, where you're going to have a runoff election very soon, you have wildly different ideas right, about, about how to cope uh, with, uh, with, with inequality of opportunity and the big gap in income. You have still those who are advocating for you know, the free market uh, as the best way to do that, and others you know, who, who are taking a, a more statist approach uh, maybe even a more socialist or uh, approach to um, uh, to the economy, and that played out in the Mexican election recently. You saw it play out in Argentina. So, is there a competition of ideas associated with how to emerge from this crisis? And what's your assessment of that competition? And and where do you stand? What, what do you think is the right model? The competition is certainly there. We can argue, I am not sure if it has exacerbated as a result of the pandemic, but it was certainly there before. We were all shocked at the end of 2019 when a country like Chile, which was one of the- Exactories, right? Yeah, absolutely. Examples in the region in terms of growth, development, services, a stronger middle class and what you saw in Chile was outrage. So Chile, Bolivia, there are several examples showing- yeah, I, I, Ecuador, I mean, it's, it's really throughout the region. Yes, Absolutely. it is throughout the region. But um, where do I stand? Panama is a free market economy. I'm a believer of free market. Our country has done well. You can even say that Panama is a, a success story when you look at, at our numbers and we are the one country in South America that attracts the most foreign direct investment. And uh, we have a strong financial sector and we have a strong logistics sector and we have the canal. So I, I, I am certainly in favor of, of free market. However, I believe that the discussion for Latin America, it's not that. Because regardless of the different models that we have within the region, and I certainly have my own views as, as to which model is best, the reality is that we all face the same issues. Regardless of if the, if the model is free market or a more socialist model, we have exclusion we have poverty, we have inequality. That's the real fight for this region. And I believe that if our leadership does not understand that we need to come together regarding that, that common enemy and understand that it is legitimate to have differences. Who said that we all need to think alike? It's, it's legitimate, but it's not legitimate to not pay attention to the numbers of exclusion that we have within our region. So I believe that this 
polarization that we find in Latin America, that it's also found in a way in the United States and, and in other regions of the, of the world, it's really not conducive to anything um, positive. I think we need to concentrate on development and what can we do, uh, what can our partners do? When you look, and, and I believe it is this year that uh, the Alliance for Progress will turn 60 years. We have, you are, you are, you are a, a, a professor of history and you are a, a great student of history and you look at what history teaches us constantly. I think it would be great to look at history and what have the different models of accompanying efforts for development shown. Yeah. What's the difference, for example, between the Alliance for Progress and the programs that were once installed for Korea and Taiwan that really transformed those societies. There's, there's got to be a difference there. That's what we need. We need to transform our societies so that, so that, we, so that we give opportunities to those that today are not getting those, those opportunities. So yes, polarization is here. Yes, I am concerned about it. But I'm more concerned as well of the doubts that, that Latin American societies have of democracy being the right model for us. That really worries me. Many years ago, we were all facing guerrilla warfare and authoritarian regimes and military right. regimes. And then we were all striving to have democracy. Now, right. not all of the countries in the region there are some worrying exceptions, but democracy is present. In, in no, it's, it's, I mean, think of the difference, right, between the 1980s right, and, the, and the 2000s. It was, it's astounding, you know, the, the progress in, in, in connection with democratic governance. But you're right, there's this new sort of reemergence of authoritarianism and, and, and statist models. And so, so how do you see the trend? This is, this is a really, I think, important theme that cuts across the whole the region. I don't think that we we know the result yet. Uh, certainly, the forces have been for the past decade there, and 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 you see pendulums, which is part of history uh, as well. The recent election in 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 Ecuador was important in that yeah. part. The next elections in in Peru are going to be uh, very important as well. So I, I so I don't know what the future will determine in terms of left and right, but but I do know that in terms of polls done by Latino Barometro, most Latin Americans no longer think that democracy is solving their problems. So they no longer think it matters the type of system that you have. That is something to look at. When right. people stop believing that democracy is what we should strive for, that's a problem. And that happens in countries that are swinging right and in countries that are swinging left because it doesn't have anything to do with ideology. It has to do with the fact that people don't feel that democracy is solving their urgent needs, that it's providing more opportunities for them and for their children, that it's providing better services for them and for the children. So that, I think that's something that our partners, like the United States, um, that partnership is important, and I think it's something we, we should concentrate on. 
and show, you know, right. bring back the notion that democracy has its flaws, but it's the best system we've right, right. identified so far. Right. So let's bring that back, that notion back, and and let's try to make it better. We we do need to have it improve the livelihoods of our people, which is not happening. And I think also maybe just redefine the discussion, right? I mean, democracy is having a say in how you're governed. I think what people are frustrated about is they feel like they don't have a say. They feel disenfranchised. So it's really, it's a reform of, of, of democracy and, and representative government. It's not a rejection of it. And so, Isabel, I, I wonder if you might talk about the authoritarian regimes in the region, right? And what your, what your, what your, uh, your, your prediction is about the trajectories in, in the countries that are that are really most problematic. I mean, closest to you, I guess, are, are, are obviously uh, Venezuela and, and uh, Nicaragua uh, and, and Cuba. And, and of course, it, w for those who, who doubt that democracy is the right model, of course, you know, these totalitarian authoritarian regimes certainly are not the model uh, because of the, the tremendous suffering that people are undergoing there, the lack of due process of law and and the way people are are, are persecuted uh, in those countries, how do you see this this kind of competition between democracy and this extreme forms of authoritarianism uh, that, that exist in in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua? It's interesting, uh, and, and the three situations are completely different, and where. Uh, came to life with a very different story each, history with a very different history each. And I think, um, and I think they need to be looked at separately because they're, they're not all the same. Right. Uh, I'm and, 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 and it's a period of where there's change happening all the time, right? Because you have the, you know, the, the, there's, there's now a leader in Cuba who, whose last name is not Castro, you know, but the army is still in charge. And, and in Venezuela, you just keep thinking, can it get any worse? I mean, it's so bad. So I, I so I, I'd love to hear obviously your diagnosis, but also what you think is going to happen uh, in, in the coming in the coming years. Let, let, let me refer first to to Nicaragua, because I think it's very sad that the world is not really paying enough attention to what's happening yeah, in Nicaragua. Venezuela is on everybody's top of mind. Mm has been for the past years. Nicaragua is not. And we have elections taking place uh, in a few months in Nicaragua. Will we have the same scenario that we've had for recent elections where they are mock elections and the will of the people is not, um, is not uh, respected? That can happen. What is the Western Hemisphere, our neighbors, the world, going to do regarding that? There are several multilateral organizations that are out of Nicaragua, have been out of Nicaragua for, for a number of years just because they have been expelled. I, I'm not sure, but I even believe that um, Human Rights Watch has been, as an NGO that monitors human rights, it's not allowing so it's like there is a world going on in there that we have very little information on. And, and I, my, my biggest concern with Nicaragua 
is that we're not paying enough attention to what's going on there and we need to look at what's going on there. I believe that um, the population is showing stronger signs of not willing to take it anymore and that's positive. Will that be able to result in a unified uh, opposition that can ensure uh, that democratic processes are in place, we need to wait and see. But uh, that, that's the case in Nicaragua, and, and we need to recognize that what's happening in Nicaragua was fed for many years by a, by a complacent, complacent population, including the private sector, that, you know, things were going well. Okay, it's an authoritarian regime, but we can do business. That's a problem. Venezuela, it's a whole different situation. Venezuela, the humanitarian crisis, it's indescribable. The suffering of the people of Venezuela is indescribable. People do not have medicines, people do not have um, food, people do not have work. And I believe that Maduro knows he needs to go. What I wonder is if the world has really carefully looked at an exit strategy for Maduro. Because where is he going to go? Not only him, but this whole regime, they are protected by the same system that they've put in place. They have nothing left except, except holding us, holding on to this situation, holding on to this system, which is... Um, not working in, in every way, but they're humans. So what are they going to turn to? So I believe that uh, we need to concentrate in, in Venezuela in, in finding an, an exit strategy. And I, I will not go about what that needs to look like. I think that is, is important what the Venezuelan opposition has to say in terms of that. And they need to come closer as well. The Venezuelan opposition needs to work together. President Guaido has made some progress in that regard, but still a long way to do. And also, I believe that the, the, the Western Hemisphere need to understand that there are other players, important players from other regions of the world that have a role to play in the potential solution to Venezuela, basically Russia and China. Right. And his, big, his big sponsors, right, are, are Russia, China, Cuba, and also Iran, right, who's keeping him on life support to a certain extent. So. Well, that, where not, not, that's that's not a cocktail party as well. I would want to go to with with that with that group with that group right there. <laughs> but but I, I fully agree with you. But you know, there are two ways of facing complex issues like this: force or conversation. We know the costs of force. We we know and we don't because. Force, we know where we start, where it starts, and we don't we don't know where it, where it ends. Are there conversations happening in terms of a potential exit strategy? I don't know. I think I think there is something lacking um, there. And in terms of in terms of Cuba, I think it's positive the the changes that that you've mentioned. Um, are are they enough? Uh, will they be fast enough. Um, 
I thought that the steps taken, for example, by the United States when uh, um, the position was was shifted in no. terms of um, engaging with Cuba in the summit of the Americas in, in Panama while I was in, in government. I thought that was that was positive. We'll see what, what happens from, from there. But I, I, I think definitely Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela are three very, very different situations that need to be looked at uh, separately. Right. But, uh, Yo, I want to just thank you and, and, and uh, for everything you did on the Venezuela issue at the time. And we were great partners with Panama, I think. And, and we worked very hard through the OAS to try to get the Organization of American States to play a more productive role. It was difficult, right? Because many of those states were bought off with Venezuelan oil. Uh, but but you know I think that the problem the dilemma oftentimes is that is that if you want to for example the Obama administration approach to Cuba the opening actually all of that economic activity just strengthened the army because the army is the beneficial owner of all of the companies in the country so it's almost as if there has to be a transformation from within and uh, and it seems like there's growing popular discontent in in, in Cuba certainly uh, it's it's a horrible situation in Venezuela and, and Nicaragua. So I'm hoping that maybe just pointing out what life looks like in these countries uh, can, can actually be a, a part of the debate that's convincing uh, between a free market economic system and a socialist system, or certainly between democracy and authoritarianism. And you know, Isabel, the other the other really plague across the region, besides these authoritarian governments that stifle human freedom, is transnational crime. Sometimes they're connected, right? A lot of the times there's uh, there's organized crime. I think is one of the ways that Maduro, for example, stays in power. You know, with the, the, the you know the black economy that limits the effect that sanctions can have, for example. But Americans oftentimes they only see the results of some of the the effects of transnational organized crime and uh, in, in in connection with either the narcotics trade or or the migrate the migration crisis. And you know, you're right there, right? You're you're right, you're clo- right a neighbor to these. To these uh, these organized crime networks that are ravaging Central American countries, uh, such as El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, and 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 uh, Honduras, and and, uh, and and of course, uh, you know, a lot of that trafficking uh, and, and and movement of, of people and narcotics, you know, goes through and around Panama. I just I would love to hear your perspective um, on on this problem, and and uh, you know what's happening now. Certainly, it's not enough. But what what more can be done to 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 address to combat this problem of transnational organized crime and and narcotics trafficking? Transnational crime, narcotics trafficking, it, it's a huge problem around the world. It's a huge problem for our hemisphere, definitely. And we have countries in different positions. Panama is a not it's not a drug producing country. But Panama is a transit country. We have neighboring countries that are drug producers. And so so the, the 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 issue and how to face it it's different for for every country. My belief is that it's it's a very complex problem that cannot be looked at just from the security standpoint because it's larger than that. Number one. Drug trafficking exists because there is a market. That's that's a problem. Number two, not dr- drug trafficking is a crime, 
But in, when you look at drug producing, you have, you have the criminal organizations that are behind it, but you have innocent rural people that are making their livelihood out of that. What is the alternative for those people that are just making a livelihood and are not involved or concerned about the crime? They're part of a chain, for sure, but it's a different situation, the rural campesino in the mountains that is supporting uh, his family as a result of this crop that he's able to sell easier than if he were planting other types of crops. So that's a different situation. And going back to what I said earlier of the development issues of Latin America, we need opportunities for people. Crime thrives when there is exclusion and when there are lack of opportunities. I am not blaming just lack of opportunities for it because there are many people without opportunities that would not make that their choice, that are good people that would not look into crime. But it's certainly attractive, particularly for the youth. So it's a problem that I believe needs to be looked at holistically. And I go back to what I've mentioned in terms of development. What are the, what are the programs to create opportunities to sustain, may allow people to sustain their livelihoods, to support their families? And then, of course, foreign, foreign interference from all the regions of the world. That is... That is very worrying. Mm. And we hear many things about illegal mining in Venezuela and which groups support this and which groups control vast territories within the, the whole The whole tri-border area, right? Which is, you know, a, a, uh, almost an epicenter of illicit, uh, illicit flows of all kinds of, uh, of goods and, and, uh, and, and financial flows. That's something that needs to be looked at, for sure. And, and also, in terms of the drug trafficking, something that has been growing that we need to pay a lot of attention to is the, the maritime sector utilized to service the European market. Yeah. As much as the United States has for many, many years been very strong on uh, oversight to prevent... And it's still not not a total success, but the United yeah, States and a lot of interdiction activity constantly. There are other countries where that is not so much, where ports are not um, really, and 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 there where not not even you know ports for interdiction, but where businesses being financed by money being laundered from trans transnational crime or drug trafficking are thriving. And I think there are other regions in the, of the world where we need to look at this closer. And then again, HR, these are problems, global problems that require collaboration for their solution. Right. And there again, the role of multilateral organizations and the role of diplomacy and the role of collaboration between governments. I think that's central. And Isabel, you know, Panama's central to this, I think, you know, because of your own 
our historical experience together, right? And and I think what we've what we've discussed so far is all interconnected. Governance is connected, obviously, to economic growth and development, and is and is connected to this problem of of, of transnational organized crime. Oftentimes, the the lubricant for trans, transnational organized crime is corrupt governance, right? And and uh, and and in particular, you know, uh, leaders who who provide. Uh, impunity, right, for these groups to, to operate, and I'm thinking of the of the case, especially of the of the Panama Papers recently, which exposed you know, how intricate and pervasive these criminal networks are. Uh, this was the 2016 release of of all these terabytes worth of files uh, related to tax havens, and you know, have we learned from that? I think the release of those papers, and it, what more do you think the United States, uh, Panama, other nations can do? to not only interrupt these illicit flows internationally, but also kind of lift the cover for them and to really effectively go after these, these corrupt networks uh, that enjoy impunity uh, in a lot of places across the world. The Panama Papers definitely shed light globally on, on a scheme that was going on around the world to launder money and, and evade taxes. I need to say, however, this scheme, it's, it's very, it's, it, the, the papers show that it's very elaborate and the crime is not in opening up shell companies and the crime is not in opening up a bank account, which was, which was open around the world in, in countries not not like Panama, and the shell companies were registered mostly, most of them, not in my own country. Yeah. Like Cayman Islands, all these havens, these tax havens, exactly. But the problem is the connection of the shell company and the financial system with, uh, with people illegally utilizing this system for illegal purposes. That, that's a problem. The Panama Papers shed light on an effort that was an effort already existing. My own country was already on the reform path. We had already asked OECD and expressed to OECD our intention to, to join the uh, Exchange of Information uh, Convention. We had already signed many treaties of exchange of information. We had already uh, reformed some local legislation to strengthen the oversight over this uh, types of, of businesses, the 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 sad for us Panamanians part of Panama Papers is that it had our name on it, and and definitely it was not about Panama. Right. It was not about Panama. It, it mentioned a law firm based in Panama, doing things that law firms do in the United States and in many other countries that were utilized with this scheme, with banks, not within our country. So, so that was harsh for Panama. Let's look at the positive side. On the positive side, I think it pushed an agenda within my country and within other countries that is necessary, that it's important, that we need to continue to work for. And also, uh, again, this is about collaboration. And I think the efforts that the world is doing in terms of exchanging information and, and, and ensuring uh, stronger oversight are positive. And these are the types of 
uh, global efforts that need um, collaboration and where the multilateral system can can continue to play to play a role. Yeah, I think I think it's a great example of how interconnected these problems are, and and how you really do need multilateral collaboration right across law enforcement and 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 uh, and also to gain visibility of illicit financial flows. And what what I, what I love about our conversation and, and focusing on Panama is if you just try to imagine yourself in Panama and look at the world from Panama's perspective, Panama connects the world, right? I mean, it connects, you know, it connects uh, hemispheres, it connects the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And, and when you look outward from Panama, you get, I think, a different perspective of the world, the economy, the as we're talking about organized crime networks and so forth. And so one of the one of the topics I'd like to talk with you about is how COVID has been an auditor. We've already talked about this, how COVID has been an auditor of our societies, of certainly our healthcare systems and governance and our economies. But it's also been an auditor of, of obviously international trade, for example. And it was this this crisis that that I think alerted us to the fact that we, we biased our, our supply chains, for example, Isabel, you know, too much in favor of efficiency. Right. And cost effectiveness and not enough in favor of, of resilience. And, and of course, Panama is the great connector. We saw, we saw what happens when a very important canal gets blocked with the Suez Canal uh, you know, crisis, the, the traffic jam uh, about a month ago. I would love to hear your perspective on global supply chains, uh, and in particular, maybe this over-reliance on efficiency and by connection and, and cost over-reliance on China, and, and, and how do you see supply chains adjusting? Uh, and, and, and how could, I think that could be a big benefit for the hemisphere. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you see the trends are, what the trends are associated with, with global supply chains and the effect on our, our, our hemisphere. I love your mentioning of Panama as a connector. We definitely see ourselves as a, as a great connector. We've connected people and regions and countries even before we were born as a republic. You take the, the Portobello affairs and you take the time of colonization and, and when there was not a canal and people would come to the isthmus to transit by foot to go from the east coast to the west coast of the United States. So historically, actually uh, our birth as a republic is connected to that in uh, the beginning of the construction of the Panama Canal, where the United States has been our, our longtime partner in, in many uh, ways. Today, we are a connector in other ways, not only the canal, but all of the maritime system connected to it, our ports, our airport, we have the most connected airport through the hub of the Americas uh, flying directly to over 90 destinations. So I really like the word you've chosen because that's very part of our, our core as Panamanians. Now, international trade and the integrity of global transport, transport is central to sustainable development. We have seen as a result of the, of the pandemic how global chains were interrupted, how people were made to look closer to uh, closer providers, and that's positive in terms of climate change and global emissions, looking at uh, adjusting global change so that we get 
our products from closer sources is positive. However, global trade is super important for the growth of the world and we need to continue to uh, improve uh, global trade. It's interesting that, that even though Panama is a, it's a very small uh, country, when you look at, at, at the numbers, we are a very important trade partner to the United States. As a result of this um, connection uh, role and the role of the expanded canal, I need to mention that as well. Before the canal was expanded four years ago, the United States uh, had a harder time transiting liquefied natural gas from the Gulf of Mexico yeah. to Asian markets. Yeah. That is possible today at a smaller cost with less emissions, carbon emissions, because the expanded canal allows for those transshipments to happen. And I need to say that we're very proud as Panamanians that this expanded canal was done with our own resources. At a $6,000 million cost, if you take that two numbers of the beginning of last century when, when the original canal was built, we just built a second canal yeah. with our own effort and our own resources. And that's something we're very proud of and, and that I believe plays a crucial role in terms of a global trade. The canal connects to 144 routes globally. What the canal allows for different regions of the world in terms of connectivity is amazing. And I, and I believe that COVID has shed light on the importance of protecting routes, protecting supply chains uh, for the benefit of humanity. And I also believe that we have an advantage in that regard because the, the canal, and I believe this is part of our, of our inheritance from when the United States administered the canal for so many years, has always played a lot of attention a lot of attention to safety and security. That's at the core of the canal administration, the safety and security of its own people, of transit. So they were able to respond um, uh, quite rapidly and, and it was not really interrupted with this pandemic in, 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 in any way. Hmm. You, you know, Isabel, a, a new threat to our security, maybe our sovereignty that has emerged has been how aggressive China's become uh, aggressive you know, in, in a military perspective from a military perspective on the Himalayan frontier in the South China Sea and vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and and the Senkakus in Japan uh, but 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 also from an economic perspective and when I look at China I see various forms of what I would call economic aggression right and this is this is the uh, you know the, the debt traps that are set for countries Ecuador suffered I think significantly from that kind of a, a of a debt trap that has indebted future generations of Ecuadorans. Uh, and then there are a whole range of unfair trade and economic practices that aim to really give China strategic advantage and then really dominance, I think, over global logistics chains, right? And I think when you when you look at what's happened with fifth generation uh, communications infrastructure, for example, and the subsidization of Huawei to be able to do that, that's because China wants to dominate that. But also when you look around the world, Chinese companies now run, I think, something like 140 
really critical nodes, logistics nodes, including both ends of the Panama Canal. So what what is your view of the threat to sovereignty from, from China? How can countries in this hemisphere in particular, but more broadly, ensure that they, they benefit, you know, from any kind of foreign investment, including Chinese foreign investment, but 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 guard their sovereignty and and don't give the Chinese Communist Party, you know, the keys uh, to the future global economy uh, in a way that would give them coercive power, right, o- over countries and and allow them to pursue their interests and their model, right, the China model, which they, Xi Jinping and others are talking about very proudly now as as a as a counter, right, to to our free uh, and open societies, our, our free market economic systems, and our and our democratic forms of governance. You know, for Panama, the decision to establish diplomatic relations with China during with the People's Republic of China during. I remember our conversation about this in 2017, by the way. <laughs> One week after I had been in Beijing signing. Establishment of, of the relations, I will never forget. Um, it was great news for Panama. It was celebrated in Panama. I need to say that it it was a, a, a step that several governments in my own country had tried to take for for years, and for a number of reasons, it had not been possible. It was celebrated for a number of reasons. Um, I don't know if you if you are aware, but but Panama has a quite large Chinese community for many years, very very large. That's that's something that's interesting about our country in terms of being a, a melting pot. But also, China it's it's a very relevant country in terms of trade, growth, the economy. A country as connected as Panama, and we've discussed this. How can we not have diplomatic relations with the second largest user of the Panama Canal? So in my own country, that, that, was, that was an aspiration for years and, and it was um, celebrated. Um, I believe that regarding Chinese investment and investment from other countries Every country needs to be aware of your own priorities. Every country needs to know clearly what is best for your country, for your people, what are your priorities regarding those objectives, and ensure that negotiations in terms of uh, debt agreements and what sectors of the economy you promote these investments, it's an important decision to make. It's an important decision to make for every country. Every country should evaluate their own priorities and in that sense make wise decisions. And yes, there are around the world situations where countries are heavily indebted and that's a very risky situation that is not the case of 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 my own country with one particular uh, government but that is something that i believe we need to be 
aware of and we need to uh, look at. The view within the United States, which I understand, that um, China's increasing presence in the region is of concern. And I understand it because the Western Hemisphere is the backyard of the United States. And the United States... The neighborhood. We should say neighborhood. It's in our neighborhood, we should say. It's <laughs> not the backyard. Thank you for that. It's a, it, it's a next-door neighbor. It's the next-door neighbor. That's a better word. Um, so, but for Latin America to be in a position where we are made to choose or where we are um, suggested to look at anything other than the well-being of our own people, it's not a good position to be in. We need, as sovereign countries, to be able to take care of our own people and identify what partnerships will help us in that regard. What, what could help? The United States is a, it's a long-time partner, trusted partner to Panama, to many countries in, in the Western Hemisphere. I wish, and this is something that I discussed often with uh, U.S. administration officials while I was in government, we celebrate more investment from United States companies. You mentioned the ports. These ports in Panama, Cristobal and Balboa at both ends of the canal were given in concession to Panama ports in 1997. That concession is over next year. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Where are, where are U.S companies that are going to be promoting their interest to participate in some kind of competition to, you know, we as a country need to look at how we improve the livelihoods of our own people, how we make our economy grow, how we make development grow. And in that effort, we need all of the partners that we can get. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Isabel. We have to be more competitive. And, and, uh, but, you know, of course, China invests not just for a return on their investment, right? but they invest for strategic purposes. And I would just say that we have to maybe you know, make the argument that, hey, it's not a choice, right, between Washington and Beijing. It's a choice, really, between sovereignty and servitude, I think, because I think what China expects, and you know, of course, we've seen it with, uh, you know, these companies that have said, hey, said, hey we, we don't want to buy cotton that is produced by slave labor. And then how China, of course, went after them so aggressively. So, but I, I can't agree with you more. I would love to see Wall Street, for example, invest less in China, because in many ways, we are underwriting, you know, our own demise by, by these investments in China and invest more in Panama, for, for example, and then the canal. So I I think you're making a really important point that that we have to view this, you know, obviously as you know a, a, as an economic competition, but China, because China views it as a strategic competition, we have to see it that way as well. I think. And I believe Latin American countries need to see it from our perspective. 
what do we need to improve the livelihoods of our people? And in that regard, we, we, we need, again, uh, different partnerships. And I think that um, bigger investments from the United States and other partners is, is very welcome. Well, you, you know, I, I would just like to, as well as we come to the end here, I'd just ask, like to ask you a general question, right? The, the Biden administration has just finished its first 100 days. And of course, the, what's dominated uh, the news from a foreign policy perspective has been Iran and like the effort to resurrect what I believe is the is kind of a permanently dead Iran nuclear deal, unless there's going to could be a new one. And I think the chances of that are very low. Uh, it's been about Russia, right, and, and Russia's uh, threatening of Ukraine and the mobilization of those forces. And of course, China was has been foremost in the news from a foreign policy perspective. Not a lot about the Western Hemisphere, right? So, so I'd like to see more about the Western Hemisphere uh, from the administration. What would your advice be to to the Biden administration about? about how to craft a, a hemisphere foreign policy, Western hemisphere foreign policy, and, and what should the president and the administration really take on as their top priorities? I think it's positive that there have been messages throughout the campaign and after uh, President Biden took office of the importance of the Western hemisphere. He's even announced a, a plan for the nor Northern Triangle of Central America, which a group of leaders led by former President Chinchilla of Costa Rica, uh, we have evaluated and given comments to because we strongly believe that it's not conducive to a solution just to look at the Northern, Northern Triangle. We need a more integral and holistic view for the whole region. I believe that, um, and I'm glad you mentioned concentration on and larger problems. Foreign policy tends to look at the bigger problems and that leaves behind potential future larger problems. I wonder what would have happened in Venezuela if we had paid more attention years ago. Maybe that's where we are right now with Nicaragua. We need not let these issues become larger without paying attention. So my recommendation would be to look at this next door neighbor, and I like the word you used, and how it, it is important for your own country, geopolitical reasons for your next door neighbor, to be well, and how can you strengthen the partnership with these next door neighbors to help them be better? And I think the pandemic has made the time right for that. It's an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that that um, that is there and, and we could all benefit from looking at it and seeing that the issue is not security or migration or drug trafficking is a much larger issue. And unless we solve other governance situations, we're not gonna solve those issues. And I go back to the example of the Alliance for Progress and the different, very differentiated plans 
from the alliance progress that the United States deployed for Taiwan and Korea, for example. Different results came out of that effort. There are lessons there that history shows us and Latin America needs to reform its institutions. We need to strengthen our institutions. We need to solve our governance problems if we want to solve sustainably everything else. Well, that, that's just a great way, I think, for us to end our conversation. I think it is important to have this positive vision, right? We're looking at all the problems all the time. And I think what you've left us with is the importance of us to work together to, to build a better future for generations to come, which is the purpose of this series. It is so good to see you again. You're such a wise person. And, and, uh, and I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Hoover Institution uh, for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and and prosperity uh, for our children and, and grandchildren. Isabel St. Malo, thank you so much. Great to see you. HR, thank you so much and for your interest in our region and all of your efforts to educate in terms of our region. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.